Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Piedney. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. Jan Vandersandy, you are someone who is a well-published scientist with a lot of papers to your name. Before we go into what led you to look into the subject of life after death, can you tell us something about your scientific background that maybe some of our listeners would like to know about? Uh, sure, Gene. I got my initial degree, a bachelor's degree at Swarthmore College, which is on the East Coast. I got my degree with uh, in physics. From Swarthmore, I went to Cornell University. I did my master's degree there in physics. And while at Cornell, I was working for a professor who got a letter from somebody in South Africa, from a professor in South Africa, asking for graduate students to work on diamonds. And I said, wow, diamonds is an interesting topic, especially in physics, because it's got unique properties. So uh, I went to South Africa. I did my PhD there in physics on diamonds. It took about seven years, but it was fascinating because diamonds are a fascinating uh, topic. Then I came back to the U.S. Well, at first I got married, had kids, you know, as Sorba the Greek said, as the full catastrophe, wife, kids, animals, <laughs> and then came back to the U.S., where I was a visiting professor at Cornell University for two years in physics, and I lectured uh, first-year physics, second-year physics, realizing that I probably wouldn't get tenure, because in those days, you know, they, they were looking at other groups of people for tenure. So I went into the financial world. Uh, became a stock market analyst. You know, I've always followed the stock market, and I um, was an analyst for one year in Chicago, and it was too cold there. So we moved to California, where I worked at the Jet Propulsion Lab, and that's on the space program. It's a division of NASA, part of NASA. It's run by Caltech, but it's part of NASA. And I worked there on the space program, worked on uh, power sources for spacecraft, very exciting work. And uh, in the meantime, as you said, I publish a lot of papers, scientific papers. Let me kind of move into this. Because of the fact that you worked on propulsion systems for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, now we've had discussions on some previous episodes about, you know, the possibilities of better propulsion systems than we have now. And maybe you could maybe throw a quick comment on that before we kind of trace further parts of your background. And that is, okay. Now, yeah, I was just going to answer you because that's an interesting topic. I worked actually on a nuclear reactor for space power. Aha. And Did you ever encounter Stanton Friedman during your travels? The name sounds familiar. I just don't, can't place it at the moment. But, okay, yeah. He's, yeah. he's a former nuclear physicist who's currently very much involved in investigating UFOs. But he says at that particular point in time where he was involved in this was the 50s, 60s, maybe part of the 70s. Yep. Now, this was already, this SP-100 program was back in the 80s and 90s. Aha, uh-huh. okay. And this was to get, to use a nuclear reactor in space, also used for propulsion besides generating power, maybe on a lunar base or a Mars base, but also for propulsion purposes. But that was then killed by, uh, by Congress, was too expensive. Well, that seems that like every time they try to engage in these advanced propulsion systems, and this happened to Stanton Friedman, too. The project is killed. Yep. Do we just want to use chemical rockets for the rest of the century? Well, that's the chemical rockets, remember, just get you into into space. But you're right. Then you need, once you're there, you, you need even in space, you need other power sources. 
And you're right, but it's always been like that. You finally get an exciting project and somebody in Congress has to kill it because, you know, it's too, too much money. And that's always, unfortunately, what happens. So it's sad, but it was an interesting project. The, the possibilities there, and they might revisit it. The, the groundwork was laid, so hopefully one day they will revisit it, and we can actually get a nuclear reactor. And nuclear power is not dangerous. It's in the early days it was, but it's so much safer now because people understand it so much better. Okay, so yeah. right now, what are you doing? What is your day job? So what I <laughs> what I did then after I. Uh, at the Czech Propulsion Lab, I then got an offer by a Canadian diamond mining company to become their president because I knew a lot about diamonds, you know, because of my degrees in diamonds. And uh, so then for eight years, I ran a publicly traded company on the American Stock Exchange called Mountain Province Diamonds. I was their president and CEO. I did that for eight years, and I did a deal with the Beers where they now have diamond deposits in Canada. They're developing it, and hopefully there'll be a mine there soon. Two years ago, I left that. Uh, sort of semi-retired. One reason was to write my book, and the other reason was I now part-time help a friend of mine who was a graduate student friend of mine at Cornell, and we were also at the Jet Propulsion Lab together, and he started a high-tech company called Viaspace, where he uses NASA technology for uh, new uh, technology, uh, like methanol fuel cells. So I help him with that company sort of half-time, and the other half-time I've been writing my book and doing and trading the market. So that's what I do at the moment. And now with the book, it's uh, taking a lot of time because it's uh, you'd be surprised how much time it takes to try to help to promote the book, to get it out there, and to get people interested in it because it's a topic that unfortunately a lot of publishers shy away from because they don't know a lot about it and they're afraid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, how has someone who's had this incredible scientific background get involved in researching, writing about life after death? Well, it started basically when I was at college, at sophomore college in the East Coast. And uh, sort of one day I realized, God, I'm going to die one day. And you uh, said to say, well, if I'm going to die one day, I might as well find out, is there something after I die or is it all nothing as most people say or do you just believe the religious belief telling you there's a heaven and if you're nice and good and you go to heaven so I decided at the time to read as much as I could about it but in those days this was back in the 60s there weren't a lot of books on the paranormal and uh, on life after death so uh, I was fortunate that when I went to South Africa I met my wife there and we got married after a few months, I met her, and uh, she was also interested in, in the psychic, in the paranormal, in life after death. And by the way, as a scientist, that's normal to investigate things, because remember, as a, as a scientist, you investigate the laws of nature. Now, what other law of nature is there that we as humans are going to die? That is one of the laws. What happens? Is there something afterwards? Well, the way I look at it is that there might be some laws of nature involved there. And so after I got married my wife, we started going to some little psychic fairs, some spiritualist churches where they had psychics demonstrating, but we never really got anything impressive. We started sitting in a developmental circle with some friends of ours that we met at these uh, sittings. And in a developmental circle, one of the people developed into a trans medium, but again, not very impressive. Messages came through. And then we were lucky. And this is where it all really began. Uh, while we were shopping for some furniture for our apartment, this was right across from the university, a little pine furniture shop. Uh, there were two little two owners called Mickey and Sarah Wolf. They had this furniture shop, and we went in there and we looked, asked for some chairs. And I sort of made a casual comment. I said, "Oh yeah, these are hard chairs. We won't fall asleep in our in our circle in our developmental circle." So Sarah said to me, "Hey, do you sit in a circle?" And 
while we try to be, you know, try to brag about it. Yeah, we sit in the developmental circle and we're trying to develop a medium and hopefully get some messages and see if there is life after death. And then she said, oh, she said, well, Mickey and I have our own circle. She says, wouldn't you like to come one day? And we said, wow, that sounds interesting. She said, no more. So we were invited to their circle. And we went, it was a few weeks later, and we got there, and there were about, I would say, eight of us, uh, six sitters, six, seven sitters, and Mickey and Sarah. And we went in then into the seance room, and with a little black curtain across one of the corners, and there were two chairs behind the black curtain where Mickey and Sarah sat, and they pulled the curtain closed. And the rest of us, about six, seven of us, sat in a little semicircle around the curtain. And then all the lights were turned out, the door was locked, Everything was pitch dark, so we sat there, and all of a sudden, they had what's called a trumpet. This is a trumpet about uh, two feet tall, made out of aluminum, uh, with four, uh, phosphorus paint on it. So you could actually see it in the dark. There were spots on it, and there were little rings on the top and the bottom. And this trumpet then, all of a sudden, started levitating and started flying around the room. And it flew around like a bee does, you know, very fast around, went up to the ceilings and the corners, onto the floor, and came up, stopped right in front of me, touched me on the head, touched me on the knee. Same thing to my wife, Marlene, touched her on the knee, touched her on the head, did it to all the other sitters, and then sort of landed right in the front of the curtain again. Now, as a scientist, you say to yourself, wait a minute, this must be Mickey or Sarah, you know, snuck out from behind the curtain, picked up the trumpet, and started moving it around, you know, put it on a string or with a, with, a, with a rod and sort of whizzing it around. But then you start thinking, wait a minute, this is pitch dark now. Even if they did know where the trumpet was because you could see it, they might be able to swirl it around. But one thing you cannot do is sort of stop it and touch everybody right on the head, on the knee, without bumping into people, without accidentally hitting people with it, because no one mentioned anything about being accidentally hit. It always gently stopped, touched you right on the head and on the knee. So you sort of say, wait a minute, it can't be them doing that. So after that trumpet stopped, then all of a sudden Sarah went into trance, and she started talking in trance, and uh, her control, her main guide, her main control, Brian, came through, and a very characteristic American-sounding voice, American accent, and uh, he started talking. He, he greeted us, talked to us, made some jokes, which is typical for a trans medium, that the, her control gets everybody at ease and uh, relaxes, and he tells you some jokes, and he introduces and, and he started, for the other sitters, he had some messages, and then he uh, left, and another entity came through, but this one spoke through the trumpet, and this is actually the trumpet then floated to midair, and you heard then a totally different voice, someone called Mady, a sort of German-speaking lady, sort of speaking through the trumpet, and she started talking about life, the purpose of life, and things like that uh, for about five or ten minutes. And after that, she was done, and Brian came back. And uh, this time, Brian didn't come from Sarah, where Sarah was speaking, but came from outside the cabin. You could hear the voice at a different place. And that's what's called direct voice, where they don't use the medium's vocal organs, but they use something called ectoplasm shaped into a voice box. And we can get into that in more detail. But anyway, this was our first sitting, and you can imagine that was phenomenal. When you experience these paranormal phenomena, and I try to rationalize afterwards, saying, wait a minute, were we fooled? Were we hoaxed? And the interesting thing is, we became very good friends with Mickey and Sarah, very good social friends. 
And for the next eight years, because after eight years we left South Africa, they were social friends. We sat with them regularly. In the beginning, we sat with them in seances, maybe every two or three weeks. And after a few years, when they got older, maybe every month or two months. And when they really towards the end of it, maybe every few months. But every time we sat with them in a seance, Every time the trumpet would move, fly around, no matter it was in their old house or in their new house, it never bumped into anything, never hit or missed, always gently touched us, always stopped in front of us, spoke to us. It was really phenomenal. Also, they never charged for their sittings, which is also interesting because, remember, people who are charlatans or fakes or frauds will charge for these kind of sittings to try to fool you. They never charged sure. a cent. They never charged anybody a cent. Like I said, we became very good friends. I never have doubted ever that these trumpets were genuinely flying around the room. I, in my book, I show some pictures how it's done. Because remember, we always were in the dark when this happened. So Why? I sort of wonder, well, how do they do this? Why were you in the dark? In the dark, and the reason is because the mediums, like for the trumpet, ectoplasm is needed. And let me explain ectoplasm. It's something that maybe a lot of your listeners are not familiar with. And it's, it's something a lot of people won't believe until they see it. But believe me, first of all, we've seen it. And secondly, it's been photographed a lot. And let me explain what it is. It's basically when the medium goes into trance, and this has to be a particular type of medium, a physical medium, and the ectoplasm, believe it or not, pours out of their nose or their mouth. It is a whitish substance, and it sort of comes out, and you sort of say, wow, what is that? It then forms either into rods or into a sheet, or if you're lucky, into a full materialization. And I'll, but So the ectoplasm is then used to move the trumpet. It actually comes... You know, this whitish substance from the medium attaches to the trumpet, and that's how the spirit entities from the spirit world use this ectoplasm to move the trumpet around. And to me, that is such evidence of life after death, because if the, if the medium isn't doing it, her subconscious mind, her ESP, her super ESP, what a lot of the skeptics try to explain it with, cannot move it because they can't see in the dark. She's sitting there in trance. Uh, how can her ESP do it? I mean, the, she doesn't know where all the sitters are. So this trumpet is then moved by a spirit entity, someone who's controlling how the ectoplasm moves the trumpet around and touches people on the head, moves it around the room, or stops it so that somebody can speak through it. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y. 
California 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at one eight 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 UFO. 6242 and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five and that's how you do it. So Frank, what do you think about UFOs? I saw one once. I think they're out there. You know, what, what they are, I don't know. Well, I believe that something is out there. I think that those things that you see in the sky are only one small manifestation of a whole wide range of phenomena that people haven't properly named or have attributed the wrong source to. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. You are Luke Aaron with Jesus and David Vianney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Jan Vandersandy, and he is author of a book called Life After Death, Some of the Best Evidence, and we'll have a link to the book on the powercast.com website. Let's continue with this. I'm kind of just curious about something that hits me as you talk, and that is, why the trumpet? <laughs> why the trumpet? The, the trumpet is used mainly as a megaphone for a lot of entities to speak through. In other words, they use it to speak through to amplify their voices. Because a lot of entities, when they come through, either through the medium have difficulty, or for some of them it's easier to speak through trumpet and actually magnifies the voice. Like I said, there's one particular entity, Mady, always spoke through the trumpet. She spoke very softly, you could barely hear her, and by speaking through the trumpet, it does amplify the voice. It's a good question, but that's the main reason, is to amplify the voices of those entities speaking well, either through the voice box or directly. All right, let, let's talk about voice amplification for a moment, because... In the case of a trumpet, what we have is a physical mechanism that takes sound waves and essentially creates a wider dispersion field for a sound wave. And that's what a trumpet is essentially doing. All right. Now, let's say you have spiritual entities that are manifesting. Are we assuming then that these spiritual entities are going to bypass some sort of psychic communication, some sort of a direct mind communication and will instead move airwaves? Because in order for the trumpet to work, essentially what we're talking about is something displacing air, creating sound waves. Absolutely. You're 100% you're, you're correct. And what happens supposedly, and this again, this is what we've been told and I've researched and other people have experienced, is mm -hmm. that the ectoplasm forms a voice box. Arthur Finley in his book, On the Edge of the Etheric, they call it a mask. 
or a voice box made out of ectoplasm with a spirit entity then comes and puts the spirit's face into this voice box and speaks through this mask or voice box made out of ectoplasm and causes it to, like a mouth, move. So it moves the ear particles to create sound waves. So that's how supposedly it is done. So the ectoplasm, which is a physical thing, by moving that, you can move air particles, correct? And that's how you produce the sound. All right. So I have to tell you, Jen, when, when I first got the copy of your book uh, and I looked at the photo on the cover and then the subsequent photos inside of the book, uh, a lot of alarms went off for me. And let me qualify what I'm about to talk about with you. And, and you know, we on the Paracast, we, we walk that fine line between, be, between being skeptical thinkers and people genuinely interested in this topic. One of the things I noticed in reading your book is that you state that it's very rare for people to have full body apparition experiences, but that's very rare. And what you may not know, because I wouldn't expect you to have listened to every episode of the show, is that I have had, with another good friend of mine, a very intense, fairly long, very close proximity encounter with a full-body apparition. I've seen oh. what one of these things look like, okay? For so real. You have, seen, you have seen a full materialization. Absolutely. And okay. also witnessed a full dematerialization right in front of me. Okay. All right. So, so I'll qualify what I'm about to say with that statement. And I don't profess to have any understanding of what my friend Bill and I actually saw. I won't tell you that I can source it. I can't tell you what it represented, what it was, whether it was uh, some sort of a direct representation of a specific person or some sort of physical manifestation of a sentiment, which is actually what I, my intuition tells me we actually saw. I don't know. But... When I look at the photos in the book here, for example, you have a photo on the cover of the book yeah. of someone who is covered in some sort of a light gauze. Yeah. And then there is this, and I, and I have to qualify, again, what I'm about to say, there is this beard hanging off of this thing that looks, it looks silly. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it looks the, silly. That's the only way I can describe it. Well, I got this photo. I did not take it myself. Right. This was taken by a friend of mine, a professor, Jack Allen, who was a professor of anatomy at the university. He also mm -hmm. used to sit with Mickey and Sarah, and that's how we all became friends. Mm -hmm. He took these photographs of a medium in Johannesburg. And there are four photographs that he took, and he gave them to me, and he said, here, Jan, you do what you want with them. Right. The first one shows the ectoplasm coming out of his nose, sort of forming a ball on his shoulder, which could mm -hmm. be a voice box or used as a voice box. Mm -hmm. The second shows the ectoplasm also coming from his nose, forming a sheet that's in front of him. And by the way, I myself have seen ectoplasm like that. I've never seen the full materialization, but we have seen a sheet of ectoplasm in red light. And the reason, uh, we, I never got the answer to the other question, the reason for the dark is that ectoplasm is very sensitive to energy. And white light has more energy than red light. Remember, there's a frequency difference. Yeah, absolutely. Red light has got a different frequency, produces less energy, mm -hmm. so it is safer sometimes for red light. We, in a circle with Mickey and Sarah, when they had one of their friends, someone called Kitty Gordon, who was sort of a, sort of a retired materialization medium, she sat there, they turned the red light on, opened the curtain, and you could see this sheet of ectoplasm coming, or coming from her nose, forming a big sheet. One of the sisters was actually told to pick it up 
and pull it across the room. And you can actually see this whole sheet, white sheet of ectoplasm. And then the, the sitter was then told to drop it. The ectoplasm dropped and disappeared within seconds into her nose, back into her nose. Something like you just described, dematerialization. What hits me, Jan, as I listen to you talk about this, is why? Why would this happen to these particular individuals? What makes them sensitive? I mean, could I sit in a circle with my wife here at home and bring out trumpets? Very unlikely. It's like everybody has certain people, have certain gifts, and certain abilities. You have to have a certain something, and I don't know what the answer is, that you have this ability to produce a lot of ectoplasm. And that's basically the way the guides have explained it, that you have to have this capability. And some people have it. I mean, some people are bright, some people are dark, uh, dumb. Some people are intelligent, some people aren't. Some people are musical, some people aren't. And apparently, it is something, it's a property that somebody has uh, or an ability to do this. And that's all I can say. I don't know any more than that. Okay. All I know is I've seen it myself. I'm glad that somebody else like you have seen it because most people say it's nonsense. But then you say, look, I've seen it. I've witnessed it. And getting back to this picture now, so the ectoplasm exists. The third picture that this, this Professor Allen gave me was of a full materialization in white, in a white gown, an ectoplasmic gown, dressed up. And the, the fourth picture was the one of the black beard. And the reason I used that beard was, and I don't know if you read through my book, but David Harrison who had a circle back in the 40s in England. He took a picture of his relatives, because his mother was a trans medium. She used to produce lots of materializations. He took a picture of his grandfather, who materialized, also had a black beard. So it happened once before. And then later on in the book, I mentioned somebody else at a circle talking about the entity came up. This was at Alec Harris City, somebody with a black beard. So it's three times. And the only explanation I have is that ectoplasm or the gowns, the flesh of the person materializing, the beard is something non-flesh, it's hair. Whatever it is, it turns out black. Black means that light is not reflected, even infrared light is not reflected from it back into the camera. That's how you see something, and that's how you see a color, or you see something. But that means all light is absorbed. I don't know what it is. I found it interesting, and sort of a more discussion point, and I, discuss, I address it in the book. I talk about it. I show the picture that David Harrison took. And if somebody is trying to phony this, well, that's interesting that this picture was taken in the late 60s in Johannesburg. Davis Harrison's picture was taken in the 40s in England, and they both showed his materialization of a black beard. To me, if they were phony and somebody was just the medium dressed up or people dressed up in a gown, why would you have these two pictures showing a black beard? There's obviously something when they materialize that happens to the hair. And it's an intriguing topic. I don't have another better answer than that. But I find it evidential. And the fact that somebody also mentioned it in Malik Harris sitting, this is one of the best materialization mediums ever, and I'll gladly talk about him, because Mickey and Sarah sat with him, describing a black beard, tells me there's something there, we don't know why. But a full materialization, I've never seen one, I wish I had, I've seen ectoplasm, and we felt small materialized spirit children, which I describe in our book in one of the chapters. But mm -hmm. uh, full materialization, no, David, you've been very, very lucky to see that. I, I don't know how lucky I am. Uh, I, I would actually, uh, at this point in my life, to be perfectly frank, Jen, and, and I may have said this on the show before, but there's a very big part of me that wishes that none of this had ever happened to me. None of it, honestly. I, I would much have rather lived a, a normal life 
than to engage in, in this madness. To be perfectly frank, I am not happy with the current state of the experiences I've had in that they have really done nothing for me but tremendously complicate my life. Don't feel any sense of, uh, <laughs> of awe or anything. I, I would sooner, I'd just as soon trade it all away for, uh, for a nice holiday vacation. Can I ask one question about that? Yeah, sure. And the reason is why? Because doesn't it give you the comfort that there is something there, another, that there are laws of nature there that we don't understand, that very likely this is evidence that there is a life after death, especially well, when these yeah. full materializations are people that sitters recognize as someone who is deceased? Who's passed over to the spirit world? Well, uh, another way, of course, to parse that, Jan, to be you know, to be scientific about this, is that what people are seeing is some aspect of the unknown side of nature manifesting in a way that will uh, potentially deceive and fool the people who are observing what's going on. I'm not so sure that these what I would call paranormal. I don't call them supernatural because I think they're obviously part of nature. They're occurring. They, they are indeed, I, I believe, paranormal in that they're not part of normal experience. But to accept them at face value is just not something I'm willing to do. Um, well, well, you don't accept it at face yeah. value. You question yeah, yeah. it and you find out Absolutely. why. And like right. I said, the, the best evidence is if someone there recognizes the person as someone, a relative who is deceased, and who then has the same characteristic voice, mannerisms, intelligence, and, and, and physical attributes that the deceased person has. That, to me, is not something that you've imagined or is a hoax, but it's something that is really, really happening. You know, I have to ask you, though, when you raise a question like that, the skeptical side of our universe, or my skeptical side, will say, okay, that's a possibility, but what if the transmediums did research into the people who are visiting them, even if it's free. Okay, let's not yeah. assume it's always done for a profit motive. Maybe it's done for glory. And use that information to bring about this particular event. And a second part of the question is, even if it is genuine, how do we know that whatever force is involved isn't taking its energy from the witnesses to deliver themselves in a form that they could recognize? And before you answer that question... Hey neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time. Because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web. Save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the podcast.
We're talking to Jan Vandersandy. He's a Ph.D. physicist. He's author of a book called Life After Death, Some of the Best Evidence. So what say you? What's your opinion about that? Well, your point about researching it into people is correct. That's, that's something that was done back in the old days, back early days of, of, of when all these phenomena occurred, people would research, and they still do, they research into the sitters. But right. most of these good mediums, they have no idea who comes to their circle. They don't know who right. the people are. The good example is Leslie Flynn, who the direct voice. His people would make an appointment, they would give a first name, not even the correct name, would come sit down, and he would give the sitting. With Mickey and Sarah, with Alec Harris, people would be invited, people would invite friends, as long as they were vouched for them, were not gonna jump on the mediums or do something stupid, they were invited. So in the case where I, that I'm familiar with, rules out the fraudulent part where they were researched in advance. The other part is energy is taken from the sitter, supposedly, and the medium to produce the materializations. Now, whether you say that we then imagine that this materialization comes, and this materialization then comes and talks to the sitters. So do you really think that we can sort of imagine this, that the energy is taken from us, and then our minds will form this entity that uh, I just don't buy that. And I address this in my book. I, I, I consider this possibility, but I find it so much more unlikely that the medium's super ESP capabilities, that the sitter's capabilities of imagining that who, who they want to see. In real life, we can't do this. I mean, Yeah, but I'm thinking in a different yeah. sense here. I'm thinking in the sense that whatever causes this phenomenon to appear, the source, as opposed to the witness, is using the energy, the mental energy, maybe even reading your mind, and manifesting itself in a form in which you recognize. That's really not a manifestation of someone you knew, life after death, but who knows what. So before Chen answers, Chen, are you familiar with an author by the name of Henry Steele Alcott? Uh, I've heard the name. I haven't read any of his books. For any All right. Let me, let me tell you what you want to read. Because back in the 19th century, there was a book that Henry Steele Alcott wrote called People from the Other World. It's, it's very fascinating because it is, from its time, one of the absolute best documented cases of an insane situation that was going on up in Connecticut with these two brothers who were intense mediums, both of them who had led just terrible, terrible lives. And this book, which, by the way, you can read for free on Google Books. The entire book is reproduced up there. It's, it's freely available. And, and it's utterly fascinating. Uh, Olcott went up to the Connecticut to this farmhouse where these two brothers lived, and he went up with an artist. And what was going on were these absolutely reliable, absolutely intense extreme situations where in an evening these brothers would go into trances and dozens of materializations would happen there would be audiences full of people and their dead family members would show up and sit there and talk to them you have to read this because it is really really extreme and uh, Olcott was known in his day for being an extreme researcher and skeptic and he took this artist up with him and they in the book they go through the logistics of the the structure in which these things were held this little farmhouse they go through the fact that it would have been impossible for these brothers to somehow fake all of this i mean they they talk about situations where there are dematerializations going on right in front of them yeah that's, um, that's exactly the way it goes yeah okay N not a single mention of any kind of ectoplasmic medium nothing the, apparently these brothers did not need this now 
So this, this, this brings up the question of whether or not the most credible cases of physical mediums have required some sort of ectoplasmic emission. Do you know of cases like the case of these two brothers that Olcott studied for a month and a half? Do you know of other cases where there are extreme materializations or materializations to begin with and there is no ectoplasmic medium? Well, what were these people then? I mean, I mean, these brothers must were they in trance? Because somebody, yes, I mean, yes, what they yes. saw, they were in trance. So yes, one of them the was. Who came, and the people who came weren't they made out of ectoplasm? These entities. Well, the book is. They would not, have had to have been. They would have well, had to have been. Well, so the book actually doesn't state how these. They, they basically came walking out from behind this this curtain. I don't think that we have a description of them specifically forming, and, and we don't have that description. They essentially, if I and and it's a while since I read the book. But my memory is that they basically came walking out from behind this curtain. And there'd be like like 30 people in the room that would walk out from behind this curtain. And then again, many of them simply right in front of the audience dematerialize. By the way, when was that written? Because remember, the word ectoplasm wasn't coined until about 1912, 1915 by Professor Richet. And before that, they used teleplasm as one of the words. Before 1900, they didn't really have a word for ectoplasm. That wasn't really coined yet. Right. Right. The book was published in 1875, actually. Yeah, you see, that was before the days, and that was even before the days of Crooks, who did the famous Katie King materializations. So it could be that in those days, they just didn't have a word for it, didn't know how to describe it. Those older books are interesting, and they confirm a lot of stuff, but also they didn't have the words that we now have. Now, what you've described is very similar to what I described in my book on the sittings that Alec Harris had. Mm-hmm. Alec Harris was a Welsh medium born in around 1920. He gave sittings where, like you said, there were 30, up to 30 visitors, where he had materializations anywhere from 10 to 30 different materializations come on, in an evening. And there were, all of them were relatives for people who would come you know, in the sitting. And these, at times, they would pull the curtain in red light, show Alec Harris sitting there behind their black curtain in trance, show the full materialization, and just as you described, the materialization would sink into the floor while still talking. I mean, this is what people describe. You say to yourself, there's no way this is possible. But this is by reliable witnesses. So here you have a case exactly as you say, similar to back in the 1870s. Up to 30 of these materializations come. They spoke to the people there. They recognized them. Now, to me, fraud is ruled out. By the way, this, this Alec Harris also then moved to Johannesburg, where our friends Mickey and Sarah sat with him in the 50s, late 50s, and early 60s. So we got direct evidence or direct uh, witnesses describing what this Alec Harris did. And they described, Mickey and Sarah described these full materializations in Incredible, incredible materializations right in front of them, disappear in front of them. And not like most magicians will tell you, oh, they had a trap door and somebody came up the trap door. By the way, in Johannesburg, there were no basements in the houses. There were no hidden away doors in the the house where people came in through. They showed the materialization and the medium at the same time in red light. And people recognized the, the, the entities that came through. To say that everybody is lying, I just don't buy. I mean, these are cases where there's too much evidence that these things are genuine. Do I expect people to believe it? You know, it's difficult. All I can say is look at my credentials. 
Look at the evidence I've described. Look at the photographs I've put in the book of people I believe are genuine, of, mm-hmm. of materialization mediums I believe are genuine. Now the question is, are they really entities, spirits of the dead that have come to talk to us? Or, David, like you're suggesting maybe that we build this up out of energy from the medium and sort of build these things up with our minds or something? I'm not sure what you're getting at, but... I believe that the spirit explanation is the most logical explanation. Here's part of why I'm asking you these questions, Jen. I know that in my own experience, and and I'm not trying to say that my experience is in any way an absolute thing, and that all experiences uh, I must gauge compared to mine, I know that what my friend Bill and I saw, A, appeared to be a real person, except the way that she moved was completely wrong. She moved much faster than her legs moved. There was that gliding sensation, which was uh, extremely disconcerting when, when we first saw her. That's A. B, we did not see her in darkness. This occurred outside, outdoors, and uh, there was a good amount of light out. It wasn't the middle of the day. It was, it was I think, closer to like 5 o'clock or something, 4.35 o'clock, in southern Florida, but we watched this girl in in daylight. All right, so we didn't have any of this dark room stuff. There was a medium in trance, just to ask the question. No, 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 not at all, not at all. Not at all. So where There's did she no come from? There's no medium involved. We don't know. There's a long story behind this that, that we, we, we described in one of the episodes. My, my friend Bill comes on the show, and we yeah. talked about it in detail. But, but here are the relevant points I want to bring up, because I'm thinking about that girl, and I'm looking at the photos in your book. And what I can tell you are a couple of things. There's this interesting set of differences. One of the things being that when we saw this girl, the thing that really, really struck us as we got close to her was that her eyes and her mouth were in shadow. We couldn't see those parts of her face. They were in shadow. Even though there was direct light outside, even though she was not sitting in shadow, we never saw her eyes. We never saw her mouth. These things were completely lost in in, in darkness. And that was extremely upsetting to both of us. Once we got close to her and we saw that, we really knew something was just terribly wrong. More important, she was dressed in certain period clothes, we're guessing 70s more or less, but the clothes, she didn't, she wasn't covered in any kind of white cloth or anything. Her clothes looked somewhat, well, they looked real. What we both remember was that the color of the clothing looked somewhat desaturated, as if it wasn't completely there. She was opaque, though. She was opaque, and when she dematerialized, it was... Within a distance of about maybe five or ten feet as she was gliding away from us, and it's as if somebody took an opacity control on her and within like ten feet went from 100% opacity to 0% opacity in a fairly linear sort of a, a, a dematerialization. So we didn't see any kind of weird sparkling. There was no sense that she unraveled. It was basically as if someone took an opacity on her and just like gradually wrote it down until... She was gone. There was no, in in her materialization, well, first of all, we we noticed her walking along this path. We didn't see when she appeared. We just had a point where we noticed her walking. But the dematerialization happened right in front of us. I I have a possible explanation for it, which I'm sure you've thought of. Because if there's no medium who produces ectoplasm there, then most likely what you saw is an apparition of an earthbound spirit. Have you you've thought of that possibility? Well, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. So that, that would seem the more likely cases. And when you do read about apparitions, supposedly, and I just don't know that much about it. I've never seen one myself. I've read about it. Mm-hmm. But with apparitions, you always get the sense that these apparitions have 
come, they come. You've seen them. They come in their clothes, and then they disappear. So to me, that is right. a distinct possibility that you, that it's more an apparition that you saw. Sure, sure. Than, sure. than that you saw a materialization. A materialization, because a materialization, for that to happen, you need a medium. And if you don't have the medium, then the materialization is more the unlikely scenario. So that's the way I would think about it. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I-T. Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Jan Vandersandy, Ph.D., a physicist, author of Life After Death, some of the best evidence. And we're probing what might be happening here. Is this really a representation, a manifestation of your dead relatives or other people who have passed? Obviously, David has had this particular experience of, of an apparition, which he described on an older show with one of his friends. And so he's very up close and personal to this kind of thing. Let me ask you a question, which is may be peripherally related. And that is, when my mother-in-law died back in the 1980s, my wife, who held her in her arms, felt this intense pressure in the pit of her stomach. And this is not an uncommon sensation of what people feel at the point of death of someone who was close to them. Do you have any insights into that? I've never heard that, to be honest. The only thing I can think of is supposedly when the person dies the spirit body leaves the physical body as you know and there is some as I call it a silver cord that supposedly is broken tied either to the forehead or to the stomach so there, there is some kind of physical separation there and that might be what your, you know, your your wife picked up I just don't know the answer you know it's something I've never come across and that's why in my book I try to stick to things that I've witnessed myself and describe those things and then use cases where I have this knowledge of, you know, like direct voice, trumpets moving, 
ectoplasm, materialization. That's why I try to keep my book to that and not try to be too general because you know, there's so much out there and you just don't know what is true, what is genuine, are the witnesses good or not. That's why I've tried to stick to cases where I've personally spoken to people or know people and uh, cases where I believe are genuine. But in this case, I just don't know what the answer is. That would be my guess, what I just described. The red herring question, of course, is that we have people like James Randi. Oh, notice in my book I have a chapter because I met Randy. Oh, well, tell our listeners about that. Oh, yeah, this is, this is too much. We just come back from South Africa when I was a visiting professor at Cornell. This was about, what, 1981. Randy was visiting the university there. He was doing some demonstration. And they, in the physics department, said, if there was anybody there who wanted to meet with James Randi, please go and, you know, make a time and you can meet with him. So I said, great, I'll take my four photographs that were taken by Professor Allen, and I'll show him those pictures. So I had the time, got there, met Randy, I showed him the four photographs. He looked at them each for about one second, if that much, and said, that's fraud, I can do that. And I'm sitting here thinking, wait a minute, this man is supposed to be claimed investigating the paranormal. He never asked me who took them, what were the conditions, who was the medium. He never asked me one question about the pictures. He just looked at him and said, they're fraud, materializations don't exist. I can do that. And I said to him, well, can you move a trumpet in the dark and touch people in the head? Oh, I can do that. I said, well, come on, do it. Then he stops all of a sudden, you know, because he knows there's no way he can do that. That's why I challenge him at any time to go and do with a trumpet what these magicians think they can do, or to produce full materializations in red light with them sitting in the chair and the full materialization standing next to them when all the doors have been sealed, there are no trap doors, and there's no sitters dressed up in, in ectoplasm, and also having the entity sink into the floor and disappear. There's no way he can do it. Well, you know, this they're, raises they're the other question, though. This raises the other question is, Randy has this million-dollar reward, million-dollar prize. Yeah. Okay, so if this can be proven, why not claim the prize? That's a nice well, piece of change. Even after we give the IRS its cut. I'll, I'll tell you why. If you've ever read the conditions of his challenge, there are so many ifs, buts, and uh, loopholes, no one in his right mind would do it. Read the conditions yourself. But apparently Victor Zamet, who spoke mm -hmm. to someone who Randy knows, and Randy came and actually claimed that he had a way out, always had a way out of a case he lost. He had a way out, he claimed. Yeah, no, so, I, I, you know, I, I know there are a lot of people who feel that Randy is like 100% legit. For, for my money, after looking over his website, after watching a lot of material with him, I believe he has debunked some people who deserve debunking in the past. At the same time, I feel that uh, Randy is really a fundamentalist along the same lines as anybody who's a doe-eyed New Age believer, just on the other end of the spectrum. I mean, you could basically take a living alien, dump it on Randy's lap, and he would say it was a, a malformed New Zealand chicken monkey. He'll just make stuff up in the same way that people who are on the, alter the, the alternative side of this whole discussion will just make stuff up as well. I mean, he's a fundamentalist. Yeah. Uh, and fundamentalists are just not very useful, ultimately, in the understanding of reality. But let's talk about ectoplasm, Jan, because yeah. you're saying that you were present at a, a situation where ectoplasm manifested, correct? Correct. All right. Could you start to describe to us in some detail how this actually went down? Like I said, we sat with Mickey and Sarah. They had their right. friend, Kitty Gordon. She mm -hmm. sat next to them in the cabinet in trance. After the trumpet had moved around, flown around, they told us to turn the red light on, open the, the curtains of the cabinet, 
And that's when the ectoplasms started pouring out of Kitty's nose. It started running down to the floor, oh. like the sheet shown in one of the photographs of that Johannesburg medium I show in my book. One of the sitters was told to pick it up the end of it. He picked it up, held it up, and he saw this whole sheet, and he held it up high. It was about six, seven feet high, and he was told to pull it to the side of the, the other edge side of the room, so another four or five feet. And then you saw this whole sheet, white sheet of ectoplasm there, uh, slightly transparent. After a few minutes, he was then told to drop it, and it dropped to the floor, and then within seconds, disappeared back into Kitty. Okay, let's we, make believe. Now, hold on, I got to stop you for one second because we're going to make believe now that you're in a meeting with George Lucas, and we're discussing the specific behavior of a physical material because an animator has to try to recreate it with nothing more than a verbal description. When you saw the material emit from the person's nostril, correct? Yeah. Describe in granular detail for us as a scientist exactly what you saw. In other words, the leading edge of this material, did it come out appearing as if it were being emitted, coming from an uh, environment of more pressure into less pressure? How did the leading edge of this look? It just streamed out, like water streaming out. So you're saying it, it looked as if it were a fluid, yep, or it, it was displaying fluid dynamics. It was a black of fluid streaming out and coming to the floor, yeah. But it, it was a fluid that obviously had some high degree of viscosity, correct? It does, yeah. It didn't sink. It just slowly over her, came from her, from her nose, over her chest, over her legs, to the floor. As it was emitted, did it try to spread or did it seem like gravity was having an exact sort of uh, an effect on it? In other words, did it splay out? or fan out as it was coming out of her nostril? Some, some of those details, I don't remember detail. I just remember it pouring out like water over her body into the, onto the floor where the person was told to you know, pick it up and hold it across the room. Was it so, wet? No, it's a silky feel. We, uh, we weren't allowed to talk. The per one person could touch it. It's not wet at all. It's sort of a silky feel. Sort of a kind of silky feel is what he described it as, the person. All right. And so, if you speak to other people who've, who've touched it, if you touch a full materialization, it's solid. It is something that can be solid. It's something that can be like we described. So it looks like a liquid. You touch it, and it's like a fluid. And it's sort of a silky feeling. Okay, when it's solid, does it feel like touching another person or what? Yeah, the people who describe it say it's just like when they touch hands, they, they shake hands, it's just like touching a human hand. That's the way they describe it. No different. Tom Harrison in his book, with his sittings with his mother, who was a materialization medium, and I have no reason to doubt Tom. I mean, he had these sittings in the 40s, he kept meticulous records, he has the photographs, and he only wrote the book in early 2000. They never, ever in their sittings, you know, never charged or anything, and it's they just sat the family. So no reason to doubt its genuineness of his description, especially since the photographs are so similar to the photographs that I have. But he, they describe it as touching that just like the flesh of a human being. And the, and the amazing thing was they had a doctor in their circle who would feel the pulse, and they had the pulse, the pulse of the entity. You know, how do you describe it? And then the entity would just sink into the floor. And while it's sinking into the floor, it still talks to you. This I have been described by Mickey and Sarah, who were at Ehrlich Harris sittings, describing the same thing with the materialization sinking into the floor and still talking to you until the head then disappears and the ectoplasm went back to them. You know, it's the sad thing is when you, when you describe this, people say, 
it can't be true, you're a nutcase, and you can see the, all these debunkers and skeptics saying it's nonsense. All I can say is there's so much evidence for this that you cannot reject it out of hand. And I'm not saying there wasn't any fraud. There's a lot of fraud back in the mm -hmm. early days mm -hmm. that has been properly exposed, and I compliment magicians on it. But I do want to say one thing, now that we brought up this Randy, the magician. Alec Harris had a magician in one of his circles, a very well-known magician. One of his son who had died materialized. He describes it in great detail, and I have the quote in my book. Now, what do you say? Did that magician, was he phony? Was, was he fooled? Or does he describe something he really witnessed? Goldston, another very famous magician in England, who's head of the magic circle in England, he described the sitting with Helen Duncan, a full materialization, six or seven full materializations. He described those. He said all the precautions were taken. They still witnessed the materializations. So I tried to, in my book, give right. all these people their descriptions of what they witnessed, showing that there's so much evidence if you're willing to look for it, besides all the fraud. And unfortunately, there's a lot of it, but there is so much good stuff out there. And that's what I tried to put in my book. As I've expressed to you, Jen, I mean, I'm the kind of person who has had a wide range of these experiences. So I personally know, I don't believe, I know something's going on. It's trying to apply logic to this because really, honestly, that's the main tool we have for understanding the universe is logic. You know, some balance of logic and intuition is what we work with, right? That's, that's yeah. all we really have. So when I see photos like this, the logical side of me and the intuitive side of me say, someone had a camera, someone went into this with the objective of taking photographs. And why would you take photographs? Well, to be able to corroborate what happened. Is that a reasonable... That, that's a good explanation, yeah. Okay. Now, if that's indeed the case, what I'm stumped by, personally, is the fact that what I don't see in your book, and, and I'm wondering if you've seen a series of photographs like I'm about to describe, if, if I were the photographer and I was there shooting this, what I would attempt to do is to create a stream of photographs that documented the entire process of an ectoplasmic material exit, you know, being emitted from a, a medium's uh, orifice. It then somehow there's this process where that ectoplasmic material is going to form itself into a body. It doesn't come out like a full body. It has to form itself. And then after the thing has communicated, after it's done whatever it's going to do, there is a process by where it now it unforms, it dematerializes, and you're describing a situation where, for example, it's sinking into the floor and it's still talking. Yeah. Those photographs, if anybody came forward with a sequence of photographs that clearly demonstrated that entire process, then we've got something. That's what I'm not seeing here. I mean, I'll tell you one reason why. The photography, the cameras available back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, mm -hmm didn't have these kind of capabilities like we have now. Remember that. Yeah, you're, 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 talking, you're, you're talking plates. You're talking. Right. Yeah, sure. exactly. You're talking oh, yeah. about digital photography where you can just click, 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 click. That didn't exist. Well, no, so wait here, it, no, 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 no. Whoa, they, slow down. They, I'm not talking yeah. about digital photography. No, 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 no. Listen, my father was a professional photographer. I grew up okay. in a dark room. All right, I qualify this. I'm not talking about digital photographs, but I'll tell you what we did have in the 50s. We did have 
cameras that could take a sequence of photos. I mean, yeah. you know, you go to plate cameras. That yes, in terms of like the old Browning camera, you know, the old Brown cameras and stuff. Oh, yeah, to change Box the plate. Cameras. Yeah, yeah, you had to change the plate. But in the fifties, we had cameras that had rolls film. Yeah. All I can say is, David, I just don't know why they didn't. All I can say is they were allowed to take several pictures. Remember, too much. I don't know if they would hurt the ectoplasm or not, and the medium. I just don't know. It would have been nice. The fact that we have pictures is already so rare, so evidential. Like, for example, Alec Harris, they never took any photographs of materializations. The guy just basically said they didn't want to risk it. The ectoplasm might get damaged. I'll tell you what, let's go into this and the evidentiary issues in a few moments. Tell our listeners before we split for the first hour, where can they get a copy of Life After Death? Best place to get it is online at Amazon.com or at BarnesandNoble.com. Okay, and we're going to have a link, by the way, at thepowercast.com for the book. And we'll rejoin Jan Vandersandy to talk about the book and about life after death after we do our hourly break on the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Jan Vandersandy, Ph.D. author of Life After Death, some of the best evidence is with us. And let's talk about evidence. As a scientist, you've spent a number of years putting together evidence. Of course, a lot of the things you're reporting are involving experiences that you've had, that you and your wife have had. So let's look at this in more detail here. The scientific community is going to say, okay, this is cool if they take it seriously at all. How do we prove it in an objective scientific fashion? Can you take measuring instruments to these sessions? How do we do that? That's a very good point, and I actually addressed that in my introduction. And this is the trouble with paranormal phenomena, because you, have, you need a medium. You know, to get these phenomena, whether it's channeling, trance, direct voice, materialization, ectoplasm, you need a medium. And the trouble with a medium is, is not like a scientific experiment, which I'm used to as a physicist. As a physicist, you go do an experiment, you'd repeat it, and you'd get the same result. And you'd know that you've duplicated your experiment. Sure. When it comes to the paranormal, you are dealing with a human being, a medium. And the trouble with a medium is that the medium does not always reproduce exactly the same. And I'll give an example. A lot of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with channelers. You know, there's John Edward, James from Prague, there's all these things on TV. I'm sure you guys might, I don't know if you've ever interviewed one, but channelers, they give messages. On TV, of course, you always see the great messages. You know, they always probably edit out the ones that weren't too good. But most of the time, channelers, or if you had, if you went gone to a psychic fee or you sat with a channeler, they have good days and bad days. You can get a fantastic reading, and you can get a terrible reading. I myself have sat with a lot of channelers, ones who aren't, there's a difference from a channeler and a medium. A medium is the one who goes in trance, and a you know, channeler is the one who just gives you the messages. They actually hear the, or see the messages that they have to give. I would describe that, say, 75-80% of my sittings with channelers probably were not very good. I've never really got very good messages, got general statements. When you do get a good channeler, one who really gives you good evidence, doesn't happen very often. And the trouble is it's not like, and I described this in my book of opening a tap or switching on a light switch. Mediumship just isn't that way reproducible. And that's unfortunately what makes the scientific evidence so difficult. Even with Mickey and Sarah, we've had sittings where we were sure we were talking to Sarah, that Brian was talking, but we were sure it was Sarah talking, that she mm -hmm. just physically, she wasn't in a good mental state, uh, she wasn't feeling well, whatever the condition is, 
we knew we weren't talking to Brian, we were talking to Sarah. A lot of people describe in the literature these kind of events where the medium just couldn't produce. Even very famous mediums like uh, Leslie Flint, who is a direct voice medium, he would have a sitting where people would pay, he'd sit down, nothing happened. And these things occasionally happen and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the trouble with mediumship. You rely on a person who is a human being and it's like I said, it's not opening a tap or a light switch right. or turning on a light switch. And this is why a lot of scientists will say, well, it's nonsense because you can't reproduce it. Right. Now, you bring this up in the book because I did read most of your book. You bring this up in the book. And, and one of the things you identify is that for some of these people, because they're just people, what ends up happening in, in, in your estimation is that for some people, they just have an off day. Yeah. They're just not able to produce, but they go ahead and basically do it anyway. Now... This makes me stop. Not, not all of them. Some, not all some of them. Some of them have right. been known to have done that. Yes. Some. So yeah. don't they realize that by doing this, that they open themselves up to the possibility that they are going to really botch it up? And at that point, they'll say, well, you know, I was just having an off day. Well, if you're having an off day, can't you just be honest and say, I'm having an off day. Nothing's coming through. I'm going to stop now versus potentially making stuff up. Because one of the things that's clear, and we certainly see this more than a little in the world of UFO research, the minute someone is caught making something up, credibility is sort of shot. It's finished, and, gone. Yeah. yeah, it's gone. So why would someone, uh, is this delusional behavior? Why would someone do this, in your opinion, when it could basically throw the whole curve off for them? I agree with you 100%, and some of the best mediums were very honest and just said, I'm having an off day, nothing is happening, like Leslie Flint. Alec Harris, if there were no materializations, there were no materializations. There's nothing they could do. But the ones you're referring to mainly occurred back in the early 1900s, and there's some very famous cases of one materialization medium who would just, it was just a, for her it was a game. If she couldn't mm -hmm. produce it, she would just try to she would fool everybody, see if she could fool everybody. You're right. Other mediums, it might be that when they get older, they hate to disappoint people. Maybe that's what it was. And I agree with you. It's so stupid because there your whole life's work was discredited in many cases. Right. right. Absolutely. And the stupidity of it and why they did it is your guess is as good as mine. It is. I just don't know. It's so sad because some of the very good mediums later in life started becoming not quite honest, and that it killed her whole life's reputation. You're 100% right, to, and it's disappointing. Yeah. So to fill you in on something, there have been a number of mediums who have contacted the show who've wanted to come on, and when they do that, typically because you know Gene likes me to, 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 to handle this kind of stuff because he knows that I'm I'm rough and tough, unlike him. He's a, he's a big Twinkie. He's like a lollipop with, that, with a soft core. You listening, Gene? I am listening. I can't yeah, agree yeah, with you yeah, any yeah. more. Sure, than you're listening. I'm you, just a pussy yeah, yeah. cat, a regular old pussy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The, sun, the sun orbits around the Earth. Gene agrees. All right, now, but no, seriously, what ends up happening is that when they want to come on the show, I will say to them, "Okay, do a reading and show me what you can do. Convince me that you have some actual abilities, and we'll be happy to bring you on the show." And not a single one. We'll even try. Some of them have run me around in circles for, in one case, months, you know, changing dates when we're supposed to talk, coming up with excuses, and then in the end saying, well, no, I don't want to do this. I'm not a monkey. Oh. You know, that to which I respond, well, well neither am I. Uh, you know, yeah. if you say you have this ability, 
then prove it. And I have yet to see, we have yet to have one of any of these people actually step forward and accept the challenge. Wow. And I don't think that's unreasonable. I mean, it's like, like I've said to more than a few of them, look, if you have real abilities and you can prove this to us, we, we will stand on rooftops and sing your praises to the world. But if yep. you can't do this, then you're just someone else who wants to come on the show. And why would we speak to you? Now, let's go back to, I want to keep harping on the ectoplasm. All right. You're a scientist. You see the ectoplasm manifest. Yeah. When did you grab a chunk of this and get it to a lab? Well, remember, that's the whole point. It was done by Professor Richet back in about 1916. He analyzed it, and so did a Professor Drombowski in Hungary. Since then, well, by the way, what they analyzed was, remember, the tools, unfortunately, in those days weren't like yeah, we have nowadays. So right, you really yeah. can't analyze it too well. But exactly. it basically confirmed it came from a living person. Tom Harrison, in his book, described once they were allowed once to cut a piece off. They had to actually cut it like cloth, and they put it in a jar, and... Uh, it then sort of disappears, so they never analyze it, unfortunately. Mm. We were never fortunate enough. They said that it would basically harm the medium. And this is, you know, unfortunately, you're right, it's, it's not ideal. It's not the best scenario, but I would have loved to have done that. I would have loved to have taken it to the lab, put in a mass spec or something like that, and just to yeah. see, hey, what does it consist of? You know, you're dealing something that does come from a medium. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. My friends have witnessed it. People, Professor of Anatomy has witnessed it over and over again. And the question then becomes, you know, does it really hurt the medium? And I think, I don't know if you read that case about Alec Harris, where mm -hmm. some reporter jumped on the material, on the ectoplasmic materialization. The material, the ectoplasm shot back into Alec Harris and he was you know, sick for, for many months, and he never really recuperated. So there is a danger to the medium, because it does come from the medium, the ectoplasm. But I agree with you. I would have loved to have done that. You know, these, these are unfortunate things. And as I try to say in the book, when I give pros and cons, I discuss the possibilities. I always say it's the most likely explanation we're dealing with the spirit world here, with spirits, rather than fraud, which has been ruled out in all these cases, or a super ESP, which can duplicate some of these things, but not the kind of things we've seen. Okay, super so, ESP. How does super ESP duplicate some of these things? What well, do they the super ESP mainly expla explains what channelers and transmediums do. A transmedium, they give you messages. In other words, the super ESP is that it's basically the mind or the subconscious of the medium then goes to this and the call of whatever you want, universal subconscious, as Jung called it, or the database up there, that they get this information either from a living person or from somebody or some record, and they just give this information out then. And uh, that's how they try to explain messages from channelers and transmediums. When it comes to ectoplasm, it gets more difficult, because how do you explain that? Or when you get direct voice, when the spirit entity speaks through a trumpet with a voice box, and it doesn't come from the mouth of the medium, then how does the subconscious of the medium produce that? He can't. How does the subconscious of a medium produce electric plasma materialization and then give out all the messages? I find that's very unlikely. In the case of transmedium and channeling, does, is it possible that it was some kind of telepathy? It's a possibility. Although, and I always point this out, like I point out in my book, that the case, in the case of telepathy, 
when you do these experiments in a lab, like they've done, remember Ryan did at the University of Virginia, all these telepathy experiments, people were just above chance, you know, in guessing cards. Remember those famous Zener cards oh, yeah, that they sure, had? Sure, they were sure. just above chance. So even if you have a trans medium who supposedly, that her subconscious and goes and gets, gathers all this information from wherever and then gives it out as evidence, to me seems so unlikely because we can't even duplicate this in the lab. We're not even close telepathy. So it's possibility the super ESP, yes, but that's what the skeptics use because they can't explain it. They don't want to use the spirit interpretation, but they say, well, it must be super ESP. Well, super ESP itself is something that is beyond the normal, so certainly even then they're explaining one paranormal phenomenon with another. If it isn't this, it's that. Exactly. So, I mean, already your mind is doing things which we can't do, you know, in ordinary day existence. If we want to Google information, on the, we've got to, have to turn the computer on, you have to get onto Google and you get all the facts you want. Now, can the human subconscious do that? Well, nobody has shown that capability, but when they're in trance or channeling, supposedly all of a sudden they have this capability. So I find it a little bit more far-fetched, and hey, maybe there is a spirit communicating. Let's now, talk about spirits in a moment. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for nineteen ninety-five, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for nineteen ninety-nine, just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y. California 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1 888 UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. You are the Paracast with Jesus and Lily David Piani. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Jan Vandersandy author of Life After Death, some of the best evidence. And I guess we have to focus on this. All right. So we're talking about a spirit world. What is your concept of a spirit world? Is this a place where people who die go to as a way station before they go to their final or ultimate destination? I wish I knew. 
All I can tell you is, from what I've read and what I've heard from the spirits we've spoken to, they basically tell you, and as a physicist, my physics explanation comes in here, that there are higher levels of vibration. Remember, in, this, in, the, in our physical world here, we only have vibrations, frequencies, as is what, up to 10 to the 13, 10 to the 14, something like that, cycles per second, or hertz, as they call it nowadays. Any frequency vibrations higher than that, we cannot measure, we cannot see. So it is possible that once you die, that if you do have a spirit body, that I believe there is, or something something goes to another level of existence, it is at a higher frequency, a higher vibration. So that way it cannot be measured, it cannot be seen. But there are those psychics who maybe have this capability that they can see at slightly higher frequencies than we can measure or observe with our normal physical um, organs. So there is some level of existence at higher frequency vibration. What we do there, what we're told there, we evolve. And we go to a level based on our human experience here. You know, whether that's exactly what happens, I just don't know. We've been told that, that we go to higher levels of existence, and depending on how well you live your life here, depends on where you go. Basic heaven and hell concept. That's a basic, not sure. hell, but just different levels of, of, of existence. To me, it is possible that it does exist, yes. Why should 10 to the 14 or whatever highest frequency we can measure is the ultimate frequency? It seems so much more likely that there could be a much higher frequency levels, you know, frequencies or vibrations, which does make yeah. a lot of sense. That certainly does make sense at a certain level, and we've discussed on this show that as a species, we're not at this point in possession of enough knowledge to understand the exact nature of reality. We're not that far along at this point in time, and there are a lot of reasons to believe that. But when you say these things, Jen, are we talking about information that's been somehow conveyed from the afterlife? A lot of this, from what I've heard, are in conversations with some of the entities that spoke through Sarah, through direct voice, some of what they've explained. And they tell you that, you have a, that life is not a waste of time, you don't, it's not the end, that there is life afterwards, that you are here for a purpose, uh, that your purpose here is to experience good things and the bad things, it is to learn and to evolve. And then when you go afterwards, when you die, it's whatever you go to is much better than what you're here. So uh, they tell you don't don't worry about it, and that you will. But the purpose is to live as well as you can. And uh, they don't go into a lot of details of describing the afterlife. And one of the reasons they say is that when you pass over to the spirit world, all of a sudden you don't become omniscient or that you know everything. You just there you are, a spirit, and you're just there now in a different world, again, starting you know, to learn again about it. So, and then if you come back and talk to people here, you're only talking about your limited experience that you've had in the spirit world. And that could explain a lot of times why you get different descriptions by different spirit entities. It just depends on how much they've experienced in the, in the spirit world. And that makes sense. But they don't give a lot of details. They tell you that the purpose is, to, again, to evolve more, and it's an infinite process. More than that, I cannot tell you, but those are the kind of things we've been told through people, entities, spirit entities, who've spoken through the trumpet when I was sitting there midair, and uh, I spoke like that. So it does make a lot of sense. Do Is life totally a waste here? Well, if that's the case, it would be, a, you know, if this all happens by chance, 
I find that as a physicist, I find that hard to believe. Remember, when you go back to the Big Bang, even trying to explain the Big Bang, it's, you know, it just doesn't make sense if it was all a random event. So uh, as a physicist, you say, yeah, it makes more sense that there was a purpose out there. And that's my personal as a scientist, how I can explain it. Plus, the evidence I've seen tells me, you know, the, the, likelihood, the, more, the, the likelihood is that, yes, there definitely is a spirit world, and we have been talking to spirits. Now, here's a question for you about the ectoplasmum phenomenon. Is there anybody today that you know of that is channeling using this methodology, using this, uh, this technique? Yes. Uh, in my book, I describe two current materialization mediums. One is David Thompson in Australia. And he sits in a circle where Victor Zamet sits. Victor Zamet has a website that he describes every week almost the sittings they've had. You can listen to it. He's very nice, good about it. Uh, they've taken pictures of him also with the ectoplasm coming out of his nose and forming a sheet and things like that. And he is going to give a tour here in the U.S. from what I understand. So he's coming to the U.S. I don't know the exact dates. When I do find out, I'll let you know because it's something that obviously yeah. would be very sought after tickets to get, you know, to go to one of his sittings. So that's one materialization medium. He is not as advanced as Alec Harris. In other words, it's still in the dark where people can, where they hear the entities walk around, they can touch you, but they don't uh, see the full materialization. They do see ectoplasm, but then they turn the red light off. There's another materialization medium in England where, again, they've taken the pictures, they've seen the ectoplasm in the red light, the full materializations they have not seen. They, they could feel them, they would touch them. Uh, again, all done for to protect the medium. So there still are some, but not like they were back in the 40s and 50s. And I addressed that case. Why and is my, that? Why do we have less mediums today? Uh, my explanation is, back in the early 1900s and mid-1900s, Spiritualism was a much more accepted and much widely practiced than nowadays. There were a lot of spiritualist churches in England uh, and the continent, in South Africa, for example. Here in the U.S., I'm not so sure about how many uh, there was. Uh, were a lot of spiritualist churches. But those spiritualist churches, especially in England and South Africa, they would have development circles where they would sit to develop mediums. You know, either to become trans mediums, direct voice, materialization. So they would actually sit there once a week, twice a week, for the sole purpose of trying to develop mediums. That doesn't mm -hmm. happen anymore. Well, because can we have, have a medium school, a place where someone who they, may they exhibit have, some kind of sensitivity to go? Or is there a medium school where you can They do have it. In England, it still exists. At sure. the Arthur Finley College, okay. uh, they still do this, where they, have, where they try to develop mediums. So it does happen. Also, I think the danger is that anybody who's a, full, who's a materialization medium, I wouldn't be performing in public. You know, the danger of so many of these skeptics and kooks out there, they would come and they would destroy the ectoplasm and they could kill you as a medium. They, so if you are a materialization you? medium, it's something you would give in very private circles, and that's about it. So the ones who do perform in public, and they do perform in England, it's, uh, they're quite, there's still some there, but not like in the old, not like they were in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. How would they kill you? The ectoplasm, they claim it's, if it's really, if the ectoplasm is damaged, since it does come from the medium, it does in some way damage the medium. I've never heard of one, but the spirit entities have said that in really rare cases it could, it could kill them. Alec Harris, who had a, um, 
uh, I told you someone jumped on one of his materializations, mm -hmm. and, and the ectoplasm is shot back into him, was really, really severely affected. You know, he was sick for many months. And, Let uh, me ask you here. Now, you've gone to people who have had this power. How about you or your wife? Have you thought of becoming mediums yourself? We, we've, we've sat in development circles. I've never had the experience of going off into trance or anything like that or ever having the ability of channeling. They told my wife that if she really wanted to, she could sit for that, and she preferred not to. So she was basically they asked her if she wanted to, and she said no. She didn't like just being unconscious all the time. You know, when you're in trance, you know, you, you just don't know what's happening. So they basically, she said no. But they did ask her if that one time if she wanted to do it, but she said no. I myself know I've never been had any experiences. Now, so, looking at sad. the meta picture here, and that is we have mediums, we have mediums around the world, we have these reports, and they are put in the category of kooks or oddball events. How do we acquaint the greater scientific community with this stuff in a way where they'll take it seriously? Uh, that is unfortunately very difficult. I mean, I've spoken to my colleagues while I was at Cornell, for example, showed them my pictures. Some of them were very interested. Uh, some of them would say, you know, no way, it can't happen, it's not possible, laws of physics don't allow it. And others would say, be very agnostic and say they just don't know. They said, Jan, you're a good scientist. We believe that, you know, what you experience is true, but I won't believe it until I see it myself. Which is basically was sort of my attitude as well. I did see it myself and said, wow, I've got some friends now, business people, very high up business people, um, who uh, bought the book, read it, and who basically said, Jan, if we didn't know who you were, you know, with all your degrees, publications, <laughs> everything, we wouldn't have believed it. But knowing who you are, we must take this more seriously now. And must really say, hey, maybe there really is something there. So, unfortunately, with a scientist, a lot of, like I said, a lot of my friends were just agnostic. A lot of them said, no way, the physical laws don't allow it, and others uh, were more cautious. They, the, the danger in the scientific community is that you're labeled a kook, a kink, you can't be any good if you believe in that kind of stuff. And they've labeled scientists like that from the early days. Sir uh, Oliver Lodge, um, other very famous physicists were involved in the early days. William James, the famous psychologist from Harvard, was involved in psychic research. And his, his colleagues just basically criticized them and considered them to be kooks, no matter how brilliant these people were, because they say, you know, there is no such thing as life after death. There is no such thing as a spirit world. So just nonsense what you're doing. And that's the attitude they take. It is a very sad attitude, and it's... Uh, Unfortunate, very unfortunate. Well, it is unfortunate. At the same time, the scientific mind does certainly want to bring, for example, instrumentation to bear in the study of these things, because that only makes sense. And, and anybody who watches shows like Ghost Hunters sees just how absolutely poorly most people who proclaim to be researchers actually deal with using technology. They don't know what the hell they're doing. And, and that's a legitimate complaint. So when I hear about contemporary mediums who have this ability, I have to tell you, Jen, the first thing that comes to my mind is, all right, so let me see. They've got the infrared video camera that is capturing the entire sequence of the ectoplasm emitting from the medium. They've got some kind of spectral analysis gear 
to actually find out, well, if you can't actually get a sample of the ectoplasmic material, then for Christ's sakes, be reading its spectrographic analysis as it's emerging so you can get some kind of handle on what the stuff is made of and uh, shoot a video sequence of the entire process. As I said before, you know, when I see photographs, what concerns me about this, and again, I'm saying this from the point of view of someone who has witnessed a full body apparition, all right? And, and I know what I've seen. I don't need anybody's corroboration. I don't need anybody to tell me, well, you know, you see what, what you saw wasn't real. No, I was there with a friend. I know exactly what I saw. And whether or not anybody believes, it's really, in a way, almost irrelevant to me. I know what I saw. And so I understand when you say that you, you sat through things, you saw what you saw, and at a certain level, your, your mind knows what your eyes saw. You know that you, you know, witnessed something genuinely paranormal. Okay, I'm not going to debate that point. I know what I've seen. At the same time, I think it's very useful to sort of try to move towards, if it's even possible, some sort of an objective centrist position and say, all right, if there are people doing this now, we do have instrumentation and we do have technology to move us just a little further away from, well, you better believe this. And also, what I was going to say before was, when I see these sequences of photos, I think it's very unusual really unusual like for example we have the photos uh, that you were given so we have this the sequence in the book page 91 uh, photograph number one stuff is coming out and grouping up on a ball on guy's shoulder photograph number two stuff is still sort of coming out but now the ball on the shoulder's not there actually it's even a, is it a different shirt he's wearing it, it's hard to tell whether or not it's from the same actually it looks like it's from the same session yeah, it looks um, like from, let me see. Yeah, it looks like the same session. Looks like the same session. It's a little hard to tell. Yeah. But what we don't see are the states of these things in, in the specific order that we see, as I said before, the body half melting into the floor. Something that's maybe a well, little harder to reproduce. But remember, that goes quite fast. But I would have loved to have seen that. And unfortunately, I never saw it myself. I would have loved exactly. to have them have taken pictures of that. Right. And remember, in those days, People were more, they didn't understand the technology, a lot of these mediums. Right, right. And they were afraid maybe that they were going to get hurt or something would have happened. I don't know what the answer is. Okay, I agree so, with you, especially nowadays, like well, this David Thompson. I would love right. to see a video where you, I agree, to see the ectoplasm come from his nose. As a, I would love to see them do that. I want to ask you something this? about that. I want to ask you something about that, Dan. But first... Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink, designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I-C. Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Hi, this is Brad Steiger, and I'm in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Join us as we explore new dimensions of thought. 
We're talking to Jan Vander Sandy on the Paracast, author of the book Life After Death, Some of the Best Evidence. And maybe I'm stepping over David's question here, but you as a physicist, we're in the 21st century. We have all these tremendous scientific developments. Is there nothing you can do as a scientist, a published scientist, somebody who's got credentials in the scientific world to push on research in a new direction so we can get to the bottom of this? Again, the trouble comes to you need a good medium. You need a good medium. Channeling and transmedium, they've been investigated over and over again. But when it comes to direct voice, ectoplasm materialization, you need a medium who's willing to be investigated. Like I said, the only one who is willing to be investigated is David Thompson in Australia. His guides, his controls say that he just isn't far along yet, you know, for full materializations in red light. I hope that does happen because then a lot of what David has described should be done. A full video analysis and hopefully that will be done one day. The trouble is, you know, there just aren't a lot of these mediums around and if they are, they're obviously very cautious in, you know, what they will do and what they won't do because they kind of get harmed. But I, guys, it's, I agree with you. And, but David, just to stress one point, even though I only saw the ectoplasm once, we did mm-hmm. see spirit children, little spirit children, ectoplasmic spirit children. I have a whole chapter on that, on the Christmas sittings. And uh, we did feel little spirit hands, children's hands, did see little ectoplasmic bodies of children, parts of it. But the trumpet moving for eight years, my wife and I saw that. And it never once, for in, a, in over an eight-year period, sometimes we sat to once every week, once every two weeks, once a month, never ever did that trumpet hit something by accident, bump into anything, never ever. So when you describe something like that, guys, I mean, we weren't fooled. We weren't hoaxed. There was no magician like Randy standing there waving it around on the end of a stick and then trying to touch somebody on the head. There's no way you can do that in the dark, and I challenge any magician to do that at any time in the pitch dark. It is impossible. Try it yourself. Even if you have one person sitting on a chair in the pitch dark, try touching the person on the head or on the or on the knees. It's impossible. Even if you, you think mm. you know where you uh, And then you have a group uh, of six or seven sitters. You have a group of six or seven sitters all sitting next to each other, and you don't have to feel around to see where everybody... You can't do it. I don't know. We've I've tried seen in the ch- dark. Well, well, Jen, We've I, tried. And again, I'm not debating your meta points here, but, yeah. but there are specifics that uh, the skeptic in me, when we're talking about a completely dark room, I've seen what magicians can do in very well-lit rooms. Okay, They can do things that, to the eye, appear to be absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. I have seen these things up close and wondered, how in the hell did they do this? And where there's a will, there's a way. When you're talking about a completely like completely dark room... I, I, it's, well, like you know, I said, you, try just, we've tried it because the professor, yeah. Jack Allen, and if we tried it. We've tried to duplicate what we saw to see is there any way in which we could have been fooled. And we tried and tried, and it is impossible. Well, no, see, because I... Because a magician, I, remember, needs... You remember, most of it is just sleight of hand and things like that. So, yeah. you know, we were observing, and they, they're fast with their hands, but when it's in the pitch dark, and you... They are limited like you and me. You can, they can't see in the dark, guys. Mm, mm, so, mm, mm, mm. Again, no. you've got to be careful, Jim. When you say the word impossible, you know, when Chris Angel tells me it's impossible, 
then I'll believe it's impossible. But until you have someone along those lines say, oh, yeah, that's not doable, then I believe it. But when you say well, impossible, well, I, you know what? He'd be a great guy to get on the show to talk about this topic. And, again, I'm not debating your yeah. meta point. I, I've seen a full-body apparition. Yeah. I, I know what's possible. And, and to my mind, ultimately, I try to approach this thinking that anything is possible. Some things are more probable than others. Absolutely. I think that's just, that's just intellectually honest, but you have to be yeah. very careful about using the term impossible. Well, I, that's I don't just use it in saying. my book. I, I say the more likely explanation is, you know, that's what I use in the book. Right. right. So, yeah. And that's uh, exactly know. what I described, yeah. Because the only way, the only way we're going to get anybody to take any of this stuff seriously, I think, is that ultimately we have to, we have to sort of step back and realize that when the average person, and I'm not saying the average person understands anything at this point. You know, the average person, for example, in the United States has allowed this country to deteriorate into a nightmare. Okay. So the average person, I'm not so sure about their judgment to begin with. The average person looks at the cover of your book. And I'm guessing that the first thing that their eyes focus on is that black mask that looks like a beard. And there's yep. something to my eye, my professionally trained eye, because one of the things, and I don't you know, need to go into this now, but I'm an image analyst. My eyes are trained to look at things and see problems. Uh, my trained eye says, this is a problem. My trained eye. So I can imagine the untrained eye looks at this and goes, Oh, for Christ's sakes. And, and, and I'm going to tell you that Randy might be a magician, but I don't think Randy is an image analyst. And Randy is probably going to say what the typical person would say. They're going to look at this picture and they're going to say, you know, that doesn't look like ectoplasm. That looks like some sheer fabric material. It drapes like a fabric, a fabric that is woven. Oh, yeah, again, I mean, that's, the, that's the argument they've used. I mean, that, that's what they claim it all is. Exactly. And then I have counter arguments and especially, you know, what they say is just somebody dressed up. And then I say, well, look at that picture on the front cover and look at the feet of the person or in the book, it's even better. And the, mm -hmm. the person standing next to him, you see all that white stuff on the floor. That is the ectoplasm going back to the medium. Now, if this guy was an imposter dressed up who came in through a trap door or side door or who knows what, would you be pulling, you know, yards and yards of the stuff behind you? that you can trip over or fall over? No. So that makes it even more unlikely that it is somebody just dressed up. Also, if you look at the meticulous detail of the gowns and all the folds and everything, there's so much of it, that's just not somebody quickly dressed up. That is, that is the way the materializations come. So, look, Dave, I'm not saying you don't have a valid point, of course. And what is more likely? You know, what is a more likely scenario? And uh, that's what I try to address in the book. What kind of witnesses? Were they credible witnesses? Could for, has fraud, was fraud eliminated? Could it be super ESP? And that's how, the, that's how I looked at it. That's why eventually conclusions I come up with is that the really the only possibility is that we're dealing here with spirits is the most likely scenario. Could I be wrong? Of course I can. But still, to me, it's the most likely scenario. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would strongly suggest, Jane, because obviously you have a deep interest in this topic, I'm going to strongly, strongly suggest you go into Google Books and look up Olcott's uh, The World of the Dead because it, it really, truly, truly is an important, or the people from the other side, it, it's an important work. And one of the things, as I said, he had this artist go up with him to this 
to this town in Connecticut where these two brothers lived and did this stuff. And they also didn't charge any money for what they were doing. You know, people just come to this stuff. And, and again, the story of these brothers is a really fascinating story. They're both heavily abused. They, they both showed intense, intense psychic abilities when they were young children. And uh, their father abused them, beat them, actually shipped them off to be sh- circus sideshow acts for a while to try to oh make some God. money on them. Oh, no, it's yeah. a terrible story. I'm fully convinced, personally, that it's a genuine story. And, and in many ways, it provides a reference point to understanding later materialization. So, you know, any kind of case that, that in- incorporates a materialization component um, can be studied in the light of... Olcott's book because it it's obvious that the guy was witnessing something that was extreme it seemed to be absolutely genuine and the fact that he had this artist with him documenting what these materializations looked like you know again we, we don't have a single case where the materialization is uh, encased in a, in a white material like this there's no description again to my memory I might be wrong I reserve the right to be wrong always but there's no description of the kind of physical manifestation of the ectoplasm that we see in, in these examples we, we we just don't we just don't see it there's it, and and I don't know maybe maybe there isn't just one way that spirit entities can manifest maybe there are a variety of ways just like there are a variety of ways to approach any issue in nature there are th- some things though that are more probable than than than, than possible yeah and so you know we we try to we try to in looking at all of this one of the things that's become clear to me two and a half years of doing the show with Gene now is that it's very easy to take a hard stance and then defend the stance. And, and for some things, I think we, we do do that. We're sometimes accused of doing that. For other things, I, I do try to be uh, you know, a little more open-minded. But at the same time, uh, as I said before, there is a combination, a balance of logic and intuition that one brings to the task of, uh, of trying to understand these things. And when something strays outside of that, the only way to get it back into focus is to try to apply some some logic. Like reading through your book, for example, right? You talked about some of the psychic testing done on a number of the mediums, you know, like John Edwards or or George Anderson. George Anderson, who's a fascinating case. We've had Joel Martin on the show. Uh, Joel has talked to us in depth about George. I read We Don't Die years ago, thought it was absolutely fascinating, and then you know years later have a chance to talk with Joel. And Joel confirms all the things in those books. So, okay, the guy seems to be really fascinating, seems to have some abilities, and also is charging people $1,200 an hour. Oh, my God. So I step back and I look at that and I say, so if a guy really had the ability to really do this, would he be charging $1,200 an hour? I I don't know. As a native New Yorker, Certain certain flags go up, and I and I get concerned about that, you know. At, or, or John Edwards, for example. Edwards, yeah, yeah. I, I've read a lot about Edwards, and I think he's as credible as James von Prague or as Sylvia Brown. In other words, I don't believe a word of what comes out of his mouth. Honestly, I really don't, and I have a lot of reasons for thinking that way. So I, I have concern about these things. Where again, you have somebody who would like Anderson, who seems to have real abilities but is playing in a very strange sandbox. Or someone like John Edwards, who, you know, whenever we see any of these psychic shows, one of the things that's clear to me is that you're seeing the edited-down results 
of maybe multiple hours of attempts from someone to come up with something. I've seen him use a a lot of very obvious cold reading techniques. Yeah. It's like Sylvia Brown, who is an absolute charlatan, and I hope she falls off a building. Uh, She's she's a nasty human. And that's, of course, one of David's kinder things to say about Sylvia Brown. Okay, just understand well, that. Well, I, I address, the, by the way, David, I address all these things in my book about cold reading. All of this I address because I try to warn people as well, be Absolutely. very careful. And I also point out that some of the best mediums never charged a dime in their life. And like the one Sloan, the one that, that Arthur Finley sat with, a direct voice, the guy with no, no glory, no fame, no money, nothing. You know, those are the people you say, wait a minute, maybe there really is something. When they charge huge amounts of money, I agree with you. I get nervous, too. And like I said, I very have had very few good readings. I, I gave some examples in the book of the few good readings I have had. Mm-hmm. But, boy, I've had a lot of bad readings, too. And uh, I agree with you about the editing, what you see on TV. You never know how many hours it took to finally get something. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunate. But then again, then you mentioned then the, there are those afterlife experiments that were done at the University of Arizona. Which were very good experiments. Gary Schwartz, Gary Schwartz yeah. and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gary yeah, exactly. Schwartz. Those, those are very good experiments. Those are properly done experiments. I know one of Randy's criticism was, yeah, there was a hole in the curtain of two inches or something like that, which is absurd. So, but those were initially he didn't take the precautions you should have, but he started taking better and better precautions. But again, we're dealing here with the possibility of this super ESP or whatever we want to rule it out. But uh, uh, at least. Those are properly done tests. When it gets to, you know, charging a lot of money, I get nervous too, David. I don't blame. And and let's just qualify one thing about Randy for our listeners, because, you know, people take us to task for taking Randy to task. I want to remind people, if they don't know this, that to my knowledge, James Randy is the only person in the world who apparently is obsessed with eating live, raw lobsters. This man, no, this is true. He apparently... Uh, it, kind of in his version of what the the infamous venerable Tokyo Shock Boys did with scorpions, Randy will take little lobsters. I'm not talking about like crayfish. I'm talking about real full size lobsters, and he swallows them whole, live, and raw. So when people like consider James Randy, they have to realize that he is a raw, live lobster eater, and that tells you everything you should know about the man. That's why I just wanted to make that point. I know it seems a little off tangent. And maybe it is, Gene. I don't know. Well, before we discuss live lobster on the Paracast. Live raw lobsters. Oh, even worse. This, with the, and <laughs> not, talking not with the to rubber Jan bands. Vander no, 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 Sandy, no. Wait a minute. Please. Hold on. No, stop for a minute. Okay. Not with the rubber bands on the pincers. The pincers are like outgoing like this. They're like pincing, if that's even a word. Oh, he takes boy. The, he takes the rubber bands off, and so they're like snapping at his, at his esophagus as they go down. Well, that might be Trying the problem. Trying to hold that on for dear life. It's terrible. So then he then he takes boiling water, like a, a tea kettle full of boiling water, and he pours it down his throat because he apparently likes to cook them live while they're going down. It's sick. He's a sick man. That's what I'm going to say. I'm done speaking for the episode. Thank you. Jim. Okay, Thank well, you. that's, of course, let's move on. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? 
Well, since 1948, fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit fate's website at www.fatemag.com that's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com so what are you waiting for your fate awaits we want to hear from you if you comment or question about the podcast Send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're talking to Jan Vander Sandy. I'm a lobster. I'm a lobster. Help me. Randy's after me. And we're also looking for a new episode of the show called The Search for the Live Lobster in Randy's Stomach. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I just had it. I think I we're off on a tangent here, or we're off on a lobster. I don't eat seafood, by the way. So when I listen to this, I say, huh. All right. You see, and I'm not so, saying anything funny at all. But we'd only have that last quarter hour to spend with you, Jan. And there's so much ground to cover, and I wanted to really throw us off on a tangent here. Now, we're talking about producing manifestations of spirits. What about haunted houses? We've covered that subject from time to time. What about haunted houses where you don't need to do anything to produce the apparent presence of some kind of apparition, and certainly that would be indicative of what happened with David and his friend, where they saw something. They weren't doing any mediumship, they weren't involved in Ouija boards. What about that? I don't address it in my book, because as I say, I never experienced it myself. Mm-hmm. I have done a lot of reading, and there is a big difference between an apparition and a materialization. Materialization, remembers ectoplasm that comes from a medium. You need a medium to produce a materialization that forms into an entity, a deceased entity, and that then walks around and talks to the sitters, and the sitters recognize the person. Okay, so the medium is the person who is making the telephone call to the spirit, whereas, okay, so, but the other apparition In a haunted house, an apparition, supposedly, this is an earthbound spirit, somebody who's not gone to the higher levels of vibration yet, that they then are still very attached to the earth, and in that way can apparently still be seen, not uh, as... People see them very solid, like a materialization, like we photographed, but like, like David sort of described, we're more etherical, I guess is the word, maybe something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And they can be seen like that. So there is this big difference that for a apparition, you don't need a medium. Apparently, you don't need a medium. Uh, it could be that power is drawn, might have been drawn from David or his friend. It's possible. Materializations are totally different from apparitions in that they that you do need a medium sitting there and producing this ectoplasm so that the spirit can manifest. Jan, I want to ask you a question. In the sittings that you had when you were part of these circles, when you say that you had some direct communications with some of these, with some of these spirits, give us an, a, an idea for the kind of information that was imparted to you. 
the, the sittings, most of the time, I don't remember, like I said in the book, I don't discuss a lot of the details that we just unfortunately never wrote it down, which is stupid, you know. Mm. When, you, when you sit and you think when you're young, you remember everything. Yeah. I come to the conclusion that was not the brightest idea. <laughs> so we didn't always write everything down. But a lot of the things, like for example, one sitting was our Christmas sitting, where we would come, we'd bring a wrap present, and we'd put it there in the center of the circle, and uh, this guy, Brian, would then come through, and he would address everybody. And when he got to Marlene, my wife, and I, he uh, said, oh, thank you for the black doll. Now, the medium couldn't have known what was in the box, you know, because it was a wrap present. There's no That's way right, Sarah right. could have known. And he said, you know, thank you for the black doll. And by the way, Marlene, you'll have a doll next year, but it won't be black. Don't worry about it. Which was, it was an interesting prediction. Things like that, where they give you facts. A lot of times, uh, for example, my wife was not well, and uh, we would sit with them, and they would say, look, whatever happened to you, it is, don't worry about it, or see a doctor, or don't see a doctor, and they would give advice on things like that. We never had, only once or twice, had, had a grandmother or grandfather come through, but it wasn't stunning information where I'd be jumping up and down or something like that. The most of the stuff with Mickey and Sarah was some future predictions, which always came true, and predictions about, especially about health and things All like right, that. All right, stop. Future predictions. Yeah. Give me yeah. one. For example, like what happened with the black doll and the, and the child. But the best one I ever had was actually with a psychic in Ithaca when I was at Cornell. It was not from Mickey and Sarah. This, the, I remember it so vividly because nothing was wrong. It was everything was right. We happened to come back from Chicago where we bought a house because we were moving from uh, Ithaca to Chicago where I was become an analyst. And uh, while uh, we arrived at the airport, there was a, at the hotel next door there was a big psychic fair. So we went over to the psychic fair and I asked the organizer, I said, who is your best psychic? He said, oh, they're all good. I said, no, they're not. Who is your best psychic? He looked around and he pointed at one particular you know, elderly lady and said, she's the best. So we waited until she was free. We paid our $10 and we sat down. Now the key when you're sitting with a psychic, and this to remind your listeners, whenever you're sitting with a psychic, don't ever give any more information than a yes right. or a no. Because right, right. otherwise they're going to cold read you and they're going to tell you everything you just told them. Absolutely. Yep. So don't ever say anything. If anything, even hide your rings, whatever, no names, nothing. Just say yes or no and try not to show emotion. So mm -hmm. we sat down and I said hello and she said, oh, by the way, you're moving. Well, that could have been some telepathy because we just come back from Chicago. We bought a house and she said, uh, you're going to move to the Midwest, just like that, bang, you're going to move to the Midwest. And I only see you staying there a short time and then I see you moving to the southwest. And I, as far as I can see, she said, I see you there for a long time. Now, this was in 19, 1983, 84, uh, sorry, 82, in 1982. And she also said, oh, by the way, if you're thinking of taking your second car, don't take it. It'll just give you nothing but problems. And the rest was all the facts and details she gave. Well, we moved. As I said, we just come back from Chicago. We bought a house. I was in Chicago for one year and then moved to Los Angeles, the southwest. So she was dead on, and we've been here since 1983. We've been here in, uh, in the southwest, in Los Angeles area. The car, my wife and I were actually arguing about it, about taking the car or not. And she actually said uh, she didn't want to take it. It was an old Dodge Dart, and I did want to take it. 
Okay, well, you explained uh, it all now. Dodge. Okay. Okay, but I wanted to take it, and uh, so we decided not to. I sold it. The day before we left, I got a phone call from the guy who bought the car saying that he was 20 miles outside of Ithaca, and the thermostat overheated, and obviously I had to have it replaced, and it was nothing but headaches. So those are kind of interesting predictions. Every one of them she gave was correct. Now, all that the information they impart to you tends to be of a personal nature. They don't yeah. say, for example, well, this is 1982 that Ronald Reagan will win re-election in 1984. No, this was all, this was all, this psychic gave all totally perfect information. But all personal information, not personal. information about politics, about That's right. things like that, sports, something about the stock market, none of that stuff. None of that stuff, no. So, but is it possible? It probably is. I just don't know. Uh, but this was all had to do with, you know, very personal information. She was smack on. Everything she predicted came true. Now, does that prove survival? No. But does it prove maybe that there is something there that your life is predestined? Because if somebody can predict the future, that would tell you that there has to be some kind of predestination. Well, if there's predestination, then there must be some purpose to life. Because why would there be predestination if life was meaningless? That doesn't make any sense to me. So in some analysis of this, I would say yes, that does tell me that, hey, maybe there is a purpose to life, and maybe then there is a life after death, because that would make a lot of sense then. Well, I think it, it makes sense to think that life is not just random, that, there's, that there has to be some meaning to it. People who take the opposite approach, I think, what are they called, nihilists? At that point, that's, uh, to me, again, that's also a fundamentalist position. I know personally I have huge problems with people who take fundamentalist positions and who say things in an absolute sense. And, and again, I think there are times when we on the Paracast have been accused of that, and, and I hope it doesn't come through that way. There is an episode of the Paracast where I talk about my mother doing something after she died to provide me physical evidence of continuance and not really giving me much of an idea of what that continuance was just to say I didn't just dissipate I didn't just you know close my eyes and vanish and and cease being me and she she clearly showed me that but the other side of that Jan and, and this is one of the things that I wonder about when these spirits come back let's say they come back and now they use ectoplasm and they form themselves into uh, these shapes that are directly reflective of what they were on the earth. I'd almost be more convinced if they were they were a little off versus being you know looking like uh, like I give you an example. It's the photograph number three on page ninety six of your book, right? Uh, where the guy who's supposedly the manifested spirit. It looks like he needs a shave. And I, I look at that and I think, well, now, now why? This is where I, I get a little, my, my alarms start going off again. I can't, I, look, I can't blame you. It might right? be that, that, that he always used to have a, a small, short mustache like that. Yeah. And that's the way he would be recognized. Right. Because if he didn't have it, they would say, oh, but he didn't have his mustache or something like that. <laughs> so, you know, you can argue the other way as well. Yeah, yeah. You see what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. So if, if you don't, if you don't duplicate exactly the way you were, they're gonna they're gonna find something and say, wait a minute, that's not the way he was. You know, so <laughs> you, you can't win no matter what you do. You know? I'll tell so, you what, where we could win, we're just about out of time. Would you tell our listeners, are you going to be doing anything in public about this, or coming up with sequels to this book? What are your plans for the near future? 
Uh, I am giving some lectures, like here in the LA area. On August 22nd, I'm giving a seminar, a lecture on, on all of this at the Metaphysical Society meeting here. I will probably do some more radio shows, hope to. I would like to, you know, publicize the book a bit more because I hope that I can help some people. My, because my personal feeling is there is life after death. I hope I can help some people realize it. And if you are bereaved, you've lost someone close, to feel the comfort, you know, that there is something there. I'm not going to get rich on this book. You know, I make like one and a half dollars a copy. So, but I hope to, to give people, if they're searching, that, hey, there is something there. And here is some evidence that hopefully will prove it to them that there is more to life on this plane than that there is something else. I'll tell you what, you're, you're getting paid a lot to make a dollar and a half out of a book. There are situations <laughs> where... David and I have made less. Oh, okay. Then I'm making a lot. <laughs> you consider yourself extremely lucky. The book is called Life After Death, and the subtitle is Some of the Best Evidence from Jan van der Sandy, Ph.D. And the reason he's a Ph.D. is he's got this incredible educational background, the author of more than 80 scientific papers. This book comes from Outskirts Press. If you go to outskirtspress.com or you just check Amazon or Check the link at thepowercast.com. Lots of ways to find the book. Jan, is there any way that our listeners can, can get in touch with you if they have questions or maybe experiences they wish to share? Yes, there is. At, uh, at Oscars Press, there is a page there, the author's page, and they can contact me on my email there. I think it's given there. I can get the email now. It's janvandy at msn.com. So that's J-A-N-V-A-N-D-Y at msn.com. Thank you very much, Jan Vander Sandy. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, Jan. We really appreciate it. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.